City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, city limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's the second Wednesday of the month. That means we're doing energy issues as well. I'm going to pour some tea just to get the spirit going. Here we go. I'm Kevin Healy. Karina's with us today. She's pressing the buttons also. But on this day as well, we're going to well, we're going to play a, a speech that was given by David Spratt a couple of weeks ago at a at a web conference, which was about climate change. David, of course, the author of Climate Change Code Red, more than a dozen years ago, co-author of that at the time. And since then, a great campaigner on climate issues, but he's become quite distressed or disturbed about the fact that clearly not enough is happening. Recently he, he gave some quite some quite depressing prognostications, I suppose, about the future of the Great Barrier Reef on the Alex Smith Sunday show on this program out of Canada. And we're going to play a speech about 10 or 15 minutes of what he said at this web conference a couple of weeks ago because it's uh, it's quite distressing stuff, but I guess it's, it's important as well. So we'll have David's speech on. But also in the last half of the program, because tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster, we're going to be talking to Tommy Watson, one of the survivors of that of that disaster and talking to Tommy about being there at the time and more particularly about the way the workers were treated subsequently and whether in fact I suppose 50 years later we've learned much at all out of the whole thing. So that's uh, that's today's program. I'm going to open up Karina though by mentioning a um, story this week that there's billions of dollars again going to these these job seeker agencies, the, the agencies that are supposed to get people into work, this of course used to be conducted by the government itself, the the employment officers, the social security officers, not only you know, not only went in and um, and went through the process of making sure you got the dollar whatever you were getting, but also they provided the services to find you work. But that was that was contracted out a number of years ago. And there's a story this week about the billions these people are making, and often, as it says, they're often um, business owners are often flooded with job applications by people who are unqualified but are forced to apply to meet quotas in a system that crushes some job seekers. And uh, during the pandemic, hundreds of millions of extra dollars have been flowing into job agencies through the Job Active system, with government payments to the sector approaching $2 billion this year. Uh, it's quite disturbing because it should be run by the government itself, and just these people are getting... And, and they're often putting people into jobs in which they're not qualified, but they get paid more for getting you into work, and so they put you into work and then grab it out and often of course those jobs don't last too long but the usual response of course from the from the minister Michaelia Cash she says the government makes no apologies for trying to get people off welfare and into work that's the usual response but I, I just thought I'd mention that it's a really useless it's just what's the point for that middleman Exactly, except to provide, provide profits for those agencies, of course. I mean, it, 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 it would be a lot cheaper for the well, obviously, if, given that they're, they're in it to make profit. If the government kept continued to run it itself as it used to, then it would also be saving billions of dollars a year, I would think. Hmm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> moving on. Now, we're going to get on to energy stuff because it is Energy Day. And uh, one of the things happening, of course, the, the, this week, in fact, Monday this week, the hearings, the official hearings started into that crib point proposal by AGL down there at Western Port. And it was interesting that last week the AGL had its annual general meeting. It was held online, a virtual meeting. But at the meeting, there are a number of people criticising the fact that it's still got long-term plans to continue running Luoyang uh, A and its coal, its coal facilities. But more particularly, uh, 
The, annual, the meeting was also marked by persistent questioning by shareholders of AGL's dogged pursuit of its Crib Point LNG import project in Victoria, which we've talked about quite a bit on this program. Numerous shareholders called on Chairman Graham Hunt to justify how AGL could continue to push on with the project given risks to rare and diverse wetlands, local tourism, water and air, as well as widespread local opposition that show, they argued, the project lacks a social licence. Mr Hunt sidestepped them by saying environmental issues were best addressed through the environmental approval process, which, as I say, started this Monday, but which is also essentially controlled by the proponent, AGL. But it's interesting that, obviously, there was a lot of opposition at its annual general meeting to that, which is an encouraging sign, I think. Well, let's hope it is. A couple of weeks ago, we read some preliminary comments by the chairperson of that inquiry, and she was asking some pretty pertinent questions as well. And they seem to have fingered a lot of the, the problems that we've talked about, including the damage to the water and all those things. So, so let's hope. Um, but then given that there was also massive opposition to the Narrabri project uh, in New South Wales by Santos, and that got approved despite thousands of people opposing that as well. So you can't take these things for granted, unfortunately. In the budget last week, there was money set aside, not a lot in relative to the budget itself, but uh, $350 million for recycling and handling our own waste. But part of that also, and this is the worry, uh, $103 million is to build the National Radioactive Waste Facility in South Australia. That's the one at Kimber that we've talked about a number of times with Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And that's a real worry that they continue to pursue that, although we may get on get Dave on shortly to see whether that's really viable in terms of local opposition. But it's, it's coupled with a point that was made pre-budget, but a couple of weeks ago, Angus Taylor, the Minister for Fossils, he... Uh, says nuclear power advances will be very closely monitored by Australia as we look to invest in new technology to slash emissions. He's, he's left the door open to reversing Australia's moratorium on nuclear power while unveiling a roadmap for the nation's future. That was that roadmap they announced two or three weeks ago. He says the hope of the nuclear industry is small modular reactors where they can bring the cost down and in the process achieve outstanding safety outcomes. Now, I think we'd need to uh, question the question of safety there because if once you're dealing with nuclear, there's nothing safe as far as I can see. But it is a worry that they're still talking about it. Yeah. Also in the budget last week, a, a bloke called Treverson Baker, we've mentioned him a few times again, he, he, he owns coal-fired power generators, particularly Vales Point in New South Wales. And incredibly, the government provided massive amounts of money to update it so it could continue on. The government saying they need it because the Liddell power station's going to be closed in a couple of years, in 2023, and therefore they need dispatchable power, and they can do that by upgrading Mr. St. Baker's facility at Vale's Point. Now, why he can't do it himself, I've got absolutely no idea why the government has to come to the rescue. But it's interesting because he also has investments in companies to build the uh, vehicle charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. And so he also came out last week, subsequent to the budget, and said the government should set aside funds also for electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Surprise, surprise, seeing he happens to own it. And he said an immediate distribution of funds for EV charging networks would help Australia catch up with the rest of the world in this massive growth industry and support even greater high tech as well as manufacturing job creation. So um, I just find that, that really interesting that uh, he, he gets his coal mine funded. Now he wants funds for his other interest. But also in terms of the in terms of giving money to Bales Point, Angus Taylor again said the upgrade would make the plant more reliable and efficient and deliver needed dispatchable power. It would reduce emissions by more than a million tonnes, he said, but didn't give a time frame. The upgrade is expected to add 30 megawatts of capacity and contribute to the Morrison government's 1,000 megawatt task for dispatchable power, etc. Richie Mertzian, Climate and Energy Director at Progressive Think Tank, the Australia Institute, said the upgrade would reduce 
reduce the plant's emissions by less than 2% until 2029. He noted Mr Baker had been pushing to extend the life of Vales Point by two more decades, which he said could result in up to 140 million tonnes of carbon pollution. And the, the upgrades... It's actually on a program called Underwriting New Generation Investments. I'm not sure that that Kivia coal mine going is actually new generation, but at the same time as they're giving money to him, and he wants money for his other other interests, proposed green hydrogen projects are rising across the globe, but funding shortages mean half the projects are not expected to be, this is in Australia now, in Australia, half them are not expected to be operational until 2035 because of lack of funding. So while we're giving money to coal, we've got green hydrogen, which may have some massive future in terms of uh, reducing carbon emissions, or it would if it got going, obviously, quite clearly, uh, that is devoid of funds. So it just shows where their priorities lie, unfortunately. That's it. Very much so. We know where their priorities lie, Kevin. Oh, right, yes, we, we certainly do. I was about to say our last comment before we go to the David Spratt piece. Uh, I met, we've mentioned a few times Clean Away, and we're interested in Clean Away because they, of course, have the Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump where they refuse to spend money to clean it up, and the local community is copying it big time. Uh, we've mentioned recently a number of all these problems they've got with bullying in the company, with uh, weight scales on trucks that were vols and charging people too much, a lack of maintenance. Uh, even asking workers, truck drivers, to give them back money after they'd paid them, for God's sake. But it gets worse. This week, this is the latest update on CleanAway. Their self-professed zero-harm safety philosophy has been called into question by the New South Wales government's EPA, Environment Protection Authority, which has blasted the company over concerns about its management of its operations and the approach and knowledge of employees about environmental safety. The EPA has slapped them with show cause notices, warning letters and advisory letters after uncovering consistent areas of concern following an inspection blitz of 26 company sites in late June. The compliance blitz was triggered by two chemical spills at Cleanaway's Queen Bee and operations, one of which is alleged to have affected the Malonglo River that forms part of the Murrumbidgee catchment area. Of the 26 sites the EPA inspected, only one was given a no-action finding. Across an array of sites, Cleanaway was found by the EPA to be storing waste in damaged containers, incorrectly labelling waste and stacking it in precarious positions while allowing liquid waste to form ponds and potentially pollute waters. They were also found to maintain questionable tank infrastructure for waste storage, which was in poor condition or poorly maintained and could result in a lower capacity to retain any spills that eventuate. They were found to keep poorly maintained stormwater infrastructure that allowed the potential for wastewater and debris entering the stormwater system. <laughs> Workers also had poor knowledge of site drainage systems and pollution control equipment in some sites was questionable. The EPA found the company's pollution incident response plans were out of date, including one that was five years out, and others' documentation was incorrect, mis missing or illegible. The EPA said general knowledge of environmental responsibilities regarding license conditions was poor for some employees. This is what the company then says. Cleanaway's environment policy sets out our aim of zero harm to the environment and our commitment to upholding global standards of sustainability for our employees, the community, the environment and economic stakeholders. Well, certainly uh, none, of the, none of what they're finding goes to any of that. At Gunnedah Road in Tamworth Regional Council, containers were found to be holding unidentified waste, uh, waste, waste drums that were damaged in poor condition and showing signs signs of leakage and water from an oil separator was report, reporting to stormwater. The other at Raffles Glade Eastern Creek in Blacktown City Council was found to have debris and stormwater drains, numerous pools of liquid throughout the warehouse, bins designed to capture waste full and overflowing, hydraulic oil stored near stormwater drains and bulk containers damaged but holding liquid waste. The EPA also found potential soil contamination at Rutherford, drain filters 
saturated with sludge at Blacktown, trucks being refuelled over stormwater drains at Erskine Park, a significant quantity of damaged bulk containers at Silverwater, a hydraulic leak that had been leaking for five days that was within five metres of a storm drain at Lamington, and a truck driver without a dangerous goods licence at Orange who claimed to hold an exemption to the requirement to display warning placards for carrying toxic and infectious substances. It goes on, but um, again... That's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope, I feel like my cynical brain always thinks maybe that's what, maybe that's what companies just all do. And it's just that they happen to be digging into Cleanaway's affairs that they found all of this. But it's just, I really, I really hope it's not. Well, you've got to hope so. But I mean, they, a lot of local governments and even, you know, places like Coles and Woolworths, they use Cleanaway as their waste disposal uh, company. So it's, um, it's pretty awful. And um, I guess it's going to keep developing. And maybe, maybe all this publicity will force them eventually to spend the money they need to spend to do all things properly, including, of course, we would hope cleaning up the Tullamarine toxic waste dump so that it does provide a healthy community for uh, the people of that area. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So that's our, well, it's a pretty depressing start to the <laughs> program, but it's, uh, it's just matter of fact. I suppose it's all, it's what capitalism's all about, isn't it? But look, we'll go straight to David Spratt. Uh, the recent talk he gave at a web conference, again, painting, unfortunately, a pretty depressing picture about where we're going in the whole question of climate change. The Smart Energy Council recently held its annual conference online and there were a number of very interesting talks. One from David Spratt, who is the Research Director for Breakthrough, the National Centre for Climate Restoration. David co-authored Climate Code Red, which in 2008 presented very valuable scientific evidence that the global warming crisis was worse than official reports and national governments had so far indicated. Twelve years later, I have to ask, has much changed? I'll play you the presentation that David Spratt gave, which really set the scene for the conference. It was part of the first session, which was called Setting Out the Urgent Climate and Economic Pressures That Will Drive the Uptake of Smart Energy. David's presentation was titled Australia and the Region Are Vulnerable and was such a powerful message that it should be shared with everyone. I think I should start by saying that in this COVID period, uh, we should start by reaffirming that the first duty of a government is to protect the people, their health, their safety and their well-being. Um, this requires the management of high-end risks such as nuclear and biological uh, weapons, pandemics, climate disruption, economic and uh, ecological collapse and so on, where the threat may be catastrophic. Uh, in managing such risks, COVID provides some alarming insights into this challenge. Last year, uh, the inaugural Global Health Security Index of Pandemic Preparedness found in their words, and I quote, severe weaknesses in countries' abilities to prevent, detect, and respond to significant disease outbreaks, with the global average national score just 40 out of 100. Remarkably, given what's happened since, the survey found that the USA was the most prepared nation and the UK the second most prepared. In other words, nations and experts believed they were prepared, but they weren't. Uh, and that par parallels the politics of climate disruption, as John has uh, talked about. The IPCC says that countries in the Southern Hemisphere subtropics, such as Australia, are projected to experience the largest, the largest impacts on economic growth due to climate change. We know that Australia is already a hot uh, and dry and the most vulnerable continent. And we've been warned about this for decades. Let me give you three examples. In 2009, the pioneer coral researcher, Charlie Veron, told the Royal Society in London that coral systems are healthy only when warming is less than half a degree Celsius. Now with warming at about 1.1, 1.2, the Great Barrier Reef's extent has been reduced to one-fifth, one-fifth of its area 50 years ago. Um, ocean heat waves are causing severe coral bleaching, which will occur about once every three years, but corals take more than a decade to recover. So this effectively is a death cycle for the reef and as an ecosystem, it's likely to be gone by 2030. Likewise, with bushfires, after the terrible 
2016 Tasmanian World Heritage bushfires, the fire ecologist David Bowman declared, this is system collapse. And seven years earlier, just after Black Saturday here in Victoria, Professor David Caroli told the European conference, and I quote again, we are unleashing hell on Australia, unquote, with catastrophic fires ravaging the landscape. Yet last year, the federal government refused to meet with senior retired firefighters who were ringing the alarm bells. And for 18 months, a national government emergency plan to respond to the increasing dire effects of fires and other natural disasters lay gathering dust. There's also been a, long, a 10% long-term drying trend in Australia's southeast. 2019 was the hottest and the driest uh, on record in Australia. New South Wales experienced the driest soil conditions on record with farms devoid of stock, temperatures too hot for cattle to breed and coastal rivers not flowing. The unprecedented 2019-20 bushfire season firestorm killed or displaced 3 billion animals and 85,000 square kilometres of forest was lost. Those forest ecologies like the Barrier Reef may now also be in a death cycle. Climate and fire conditions uh, similar to last summer are likely to occur more often than the time it takes uh, for the forest to recover. And Professor Ross Garneau and his work for the uh, Labor government warned of the Murray-Darling Basin's likely fate more than a decade ago. On, he said on the current high emissions trajectory, which we're still on, irrigated agricultural output in the basin would halve by 2050 and it would end, end by 2100. At the same time, there would be a 40% drop in pasture productivity in southeastern Australia. These are, these are dramatic uh, stories and we've been warned for a decade. Most of Australia can expect extreme temperatures of more than 50 degrees by century's end. Just turning now to the region, climate disruption starts with growing food and water insecurity and then social upheaval follows. Think of Syria. The Paris goal is to hold warming to 1.5 to 2 degrees, but the World Meteorological Organization warms warns that we're on a path of three to five degrees with the current commitments. At four degrees of warming, annual rainfall in Southern Australia falls by half, particularly in winter and spring. The Australian wheat industry is highly sensitive to climatic changes. In Garno's hot dry scenario, wheat yields fall to zero in many regions. And if we stand back and look at, at talk of two degrees, I think we need to understand that global average warming of two degrees implies an average of three degrees of warming over land, four to five degrees in the regions that are drying, five to six degrees in summer average temperatures in dry regions, and six to eight degrees hotter for individual days during, hot, hot, during heat waves in dry regions such as Australia. We live in the most vulnerable region of the world where the climate impacts at three degrees of warming will be eye-watering on Australia's trading partners, on forced population displacement, and on state breakdown. Because we're now heading towards three to five degrees, I thought I'd give a little snapshot of a three-degree world. At three degrees, aridification emerges over more than 30% of the world's land. Desertification is worse in the Southern Mediterranean, in West Asia, the Middle East, we're seeing all this now, and in inland Australia, which we're also witnessing. Uh, deadly heat conditions persist for more than 100 days per year in the Middle East and South Asia. Heat and desertification would make some poorer nations and regions unviable. Together with the rising sea levels, this could contribute to the um, displacement of perhaps a billion people. At three degrees, water availability decreases sharply in the most affected regions at lower uh, latitudes, uh, especially the dry tropics, where agriculture may become non-viable. At three degrees, food production is very likely to be inadequate to feed the global population due to a number of factors, including a one-fifth decline in crop yields, a decline in the nutrition content of crops, 
a, a catastrophic decline in insect populations, monsoon failure and water shortages. And due to sea level rises, the lower, uh, the, the lower reaches of those really important agricultural rivers such as the Mekong, Ganges and Nile would be inundated. So this is a dramatic story for the, for the sort of uh, climate that we are currently heading for on current commitments. According to the Global Challenges Foundation's risk report from 2018, they say that even at two degrees of warming, more than a billion, one billion people may need to be relocated due to sea level rise. And they say, and I quote again, the scale of destruction is beyond our capacity to model in high-end scenarios with a high likelihood of human civilization coming to an end, unquote. So we should have no doubt that three degrees of more warming will be catastrophic uh, in terms of the capacity of societies to govern themselves, let alone peacefully coexist. So let me just turn briefly to the really sharp dilemma, and I'll be as brief as I can and as brutal as necessary. And it's as follows. First, at the current level of warming of 1.2 degrees, we have passed significant tipping points in planetary systems. These are critical thresholds that result in step changes in, in the climate system that are irreversible on human timescales. They include the Arctic sea ice and ecosystems, coral reefs, and the West Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, in a recent study, scientists warned that other tipping points could be triggered at low levels of warming in the range of 1.5 to 2. Uh, and they noticed, for example, that the permafrost is starting to irreversibly thaw and release carbon dioxide and methane. Secondly, scientists uh, describe what they call a hothouse earth scenario in which the system feedbacks and the interactions drive the earth's climate to a point of no return uh, so that further warming becomes self-sustaining. Uh, this threshold could exist as low as two degrees, possibly lower. Thirdly, the world will reach, this is clear, the world will reach 1.5 degrees around 2030, regardless of the mitigation path in the next few years. And at the moment, we will hit two degrees before mid-century, before mid-century on the current path. To have any chance of staying below two degrees, which is itself far from safe, global emissions would need to cut in half in the next 10 years and much more in the high emitting countries like Australia. Those decarbonisation rates alone of 5 to 10% of the total economy every year for the next 10 years are in unprecedented in economic history and reveal a climate emergency requires unprecedented action. Fifth, a strong argument can be made that the high-end risks mean that there is no safe carbon budget at all for the two-degree target. If you're risk averse, there is no budget left. So in other words, the idea of emissions not reaching zero till 2050 may be a recipe for disaster if it encourages procrastination over the next decade. Last November in the journal Nature, uh, leading scientists, including Australia's Will Steffen wrote, we are in a climate emergency. This is an existential risk to civilization in their own words. Can we, as we've done in response to COVID, act on the climate, recognising it is too, is an emergency. Can I just finish with uh, Jared Diamond in his recent book, Upheaval, How Nations Cope with Crisis and Change. Jared Diamond concludes that the key predictors of success when he looked at, at nations around the world over the last 200 years facing crises were four things, and I'll quote him. One, acknowledgement rather than denial of a crisis reality. Two, acceptance of responsibility to take action. Three, honest self-appraisal. And four, the presence or absence of a shared national identity, which can help a nation recognize shared self-interest and unite to overcome a crisis. So the question is whether we have the capacity to acknowledge rather than deny the reality of the climate crisis as it exists in its full existential form and act accordingly. David gave us some very sobering temperature predictions, didn't he? We are on a path to two to five degrees Celsius warming, and it looks like we'll reach one and a half degrees by 2030, no matter what we do in the meantime. And we will reach two degrees Celsius warming before 2050. That doesn't bode well for us or our food production. Okay, that was David Spratt talking about climate change at a recent web conference, and I think 
he's raised some issues which are, as usual, pretty disturbing but pretty important. And let's hope eventually governments and authorities actually listen to people like David and, and do something more than they're doing. Alrighty, now we're going to play a song called Westgate by Mark Seymour uh, before we go to our interview with Tommy Watson, uh, Westgate Bridge disaster survivor. Stay tuned, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio. Sounded like machine gun fire You should have heard her when she came down Bridge came 
just a warning that the following interview does contain discussion of a traumatic event and its consequences for mental health, including suicide, and that some listeners may find it distressing. Okay, the day the bridge came down, um, that song, and that leads us into a discussion with Tommy Watson, one of the workers on the Westgate site. Uh, tomorrow, of course, 3CR from 2 o'clock, I'll be doing special broadcasting from 50th anniversary of the Westgate Bridge disaster. I think we all remember what, those of us at least who were around, remember what we were doing when it happened. But Tommy, uh, I know you want to talk more about what happened subsequently and how the workers were treated, but just for those, because it is 50 years, a lot of people I'm sure have heard about it, but can you tell us what happened that day, what it was like to be there and the disaster that occurred? Well, it was just a normal day. I mean, it was a, it was a Thursday. It was ten to twelve. It was payday, and and them days we got paid cash, which was you know people were queuing up to you know to get their pay. At ten to twelve, there was people going into the toilets. There was people sitting on the toilets. There was people washing their hands. People going in and out the lunchroom, just a, like a normal lunchtime. And there was people inside the bridge removing bolts from the centre of the bridge to try and get the buckle out. And they were the only ones who were aware of actually what was happening. And when they pulled too many bolts out, the steel turned blue and they lost the holes. And they were trying to replace the holes with other bolts. While this is going on, everybody else is just going about their normal business. Because if you look at the Westgate Bridge, it's like an aircraft carrier. And these people are actually inside. And until the steel cracked and we started hearing the moaning and the groaning and the noises and then it was all too late, we didn't realise there was anything wrong. And was the employer aware of these problems? The employer must have been aware of these problems, setting the workers in there. Well, about a, a month before, they, were, they built four box girder bridges throughout the whole world. Two collapsed, killing workers, and two didn't. They don't build box girder bridges anymore. The same company, Freeman and Fox, was building a bridge in Milford Haven in Wales. And a few weeks before that collapsed and four workers were killed. And as you know, going back 50 years, no computers, no telephones, we were getting information from some of the English and Irish people on the job from their relatives about this accident. Now, Freeman, the Fox, our employees, never said a word to us. So it got to the stage one morning, we got together and we just refused to go to work. So we just sat in the sheds. And then we rang up the union officials, union officials came down, and then we had a stop work meeting. And a person called Jack Hindshaw stood up at the meeting and said, I'm the best in the world. Nobody builds bridges better than me. I'll fix this problem. I designed the bridge and he should go back to work. So they were well aware of it. And then what happened was when he left, I can only talk about myself. I was 23 year old. You've got an engineer who's saying he's the best, he's the greatest. Sound like Donald Trump at some stages. And he was saying it's safe. And, and what, what impressed me was he was on the coal face all the time. If he was in the office, we would never have went back to work. He was there all the time, sunrise to sunset. And he said it was safe. So we had a meeting. We went back to work. Ten days later, the bridge collapsed. He got killed and he took 34 people with him. Yeah, 30, 35 people died that day. And, of course, we'll go on to it later. But when when it work did restart, another worker died later on on the site, didn't he? So um, there were yeah, 36. Yeah, Joe, yeah, Joe Owens got killed um, about a few months after we went back to work, yes. Yeah, yeah. So the impact, also there were 18 workers injured as well. How many of those ended up getting back to work or how many were affected for life in terms of their injuries? You know? <laughs> Well, there was there were 35 killed and 18 rode it down and survived. Out of the 18, there was probably two that didn't have major inju injuries. The rest of them had broken bones, broken arms, and really didn't have a productive life, some of them. There was four that came back on the job when we went back in uh, 72, and four of them stayed and they worked as peggies in the sheds and things like that. So, so out of the 18, most of them didn't have a productive life after the accident. And how were they treated by the by the company and by the by the system generally? Well, they're treated like us. They were treated terrible. I mean, yeah. what happened? What happened was when the bridge collapsed on the Thursday. I mean, we worked all weekend getting getting bodies out because most of the most of the people who were alive were out within a couple of hours. So we worked a weekend, 
they told us we can have Monday off with pay, which is good of them. So we have the Monday off. We go in on the Tuesday. So the bridge collapsed on the Thursday. We go in on the Tuesday. The car park was locked. We couldn't get our cars in. So we get herded into this end of the car park. And an engineer stands up and told us what a great job we've done. They couldn't have done it without us. How, how all these people survived through the great, the great efforts of the workers. And then we all got sacked. 550 of us got sacked on the spot. I mean, it was terrible, you know. And then what happened was that the funeral started on the Thursday. So the bridge collapsed on the Thursday. Uh, we worked all weekend, got sacked on the Tuesday. I went to nine, nine funerals on the Thursday, five funerals on the Friday. No counselling, no support, nobody come and seen us. If it wasn't for the trade union movement, we would have completely isolated. The trade union movement was the only ones that supporters looked after us. The employers didn't send any counselling around to us. Nobody checked on us. I mean, it's 50 years this week of the Westgate Bridge collapsed, and I'm still waiting for somebody to knock on my door to give me some counsel and ask me how I'm going. It was a question I was going to ask. I mean, apart from the people who died and the 18 who went down with the bridge, other workers on the site, there must have been, I think you're referring to it, but there must have been quite severe psychiatric damage to a lot of people who were there. Well, it was, it was terrible. I mean, the first time I seen most of the people was at the funeral. I mean, we went to the funeral cemetery in the western suburbs and we were like zombies. I mean, we'd been drinking for two or three days solid. We're trying to get through life just walking around like zombies. I mean, we're all out of work. I was 23-year-old. I've seen things that I should never have seen. I was exposed to things I should never have been exposed to. And yet the employers and, and certainly the state government, n nobody give a shit about us. We were just left on the scrap heap. And as I said, hadn't been for the trade union movement, I think there would have been a lot more suicides than what there would have been, you know? They were the only ones that give us any comfort and looked after us. Mm. Were there suicides? There was a couple, I don't want to go into it, but there was a couple, certainly a few months later, there was a, there was a couple of people, yeah. Yeah, bloody awful. Uh, and what happened then, then? I mean, after they sacked you, and the work didn't start again for, what, a couple of years, was it? Well, we, well when we got sacked, uh, we got told, you know, what great people we are, and when the bridge reopens, you'll all get your jobs back. So 18 months later, in them days, we get a telegram. Right, so you get a telegram, you want to come back to work. Yeah, so, so you go back to work. I walked on the job the first morning and the boss said to me, you're working on that crane over there, see you later. So away you go. And no, but how, how are you going? How's your wife? How's your kids? How's your footy team? How you been? Got nothing. Just go over there and start working, you know. And then what happened was they refused to start our shop stewards. And uh, we had a great shop steward called Tony McGuigan. They refused to start him. We went on strike for nine weeks to get him back. And there was no argument in the, in the court about victimisation and, you know, all the rules that we've got now. They just said, we're not starting, that's the end of it. So we were on strike for nine weeks. It was just a disgrace. Yes. So in the, in the meantime, that 18 months, um, how much work did people get? Uh, well, some people didn't work at all. Uh, some people did. I mean, there was about half of us went back, I suppose, after the 18 months. Um, I'd, I'd worked bits and pieces, done a bit of travelling around Australia. Some people worked because they had to, because, of, you know, they feed their families. But n nobody was in condition. I, I don't think any really done any productive work for about six or 12 months after the bridge collapsed. Mm. And when they sacked you on that Tuesday, was there any redundant pay of any sort, extra pay given to you, or you just sold out the door, that's it? We've got a week's wages. Oh, We've got terrific. one extra week's wages and said, see you later. No... Nothing, nothing. And, you know, it was just, and it wouldn't even let us on the job. I mean, the car park was locked. We got herded into a corner. They didn't want us on walking on the site, you know, because Bolte had called a Royal Commission and there was no work for us. I could understand that. But if it happened today, society wouldn't allow, wouldn't allow us to get sacked. I mean, we would have been looked after in some way. There would have been some system where at least we were, you know, we, we might have got some wages or some counselling, but there was just nothing. It was just, just thrown yeah. off our own graphic. Baldy was the Premier, of course. But what did the Royal Commission reveal? Well, the, the unions didn't have a right to uh, make submissions. I think they had four hours where they could uh, put an argument up of the whole Royal Commission. The Royal Commission was just a, just a smother, I think it was. It was a very quick Royal Commission. It basically blamed Jack Hindshaw and Freeman and Fox for the accident and also had to go out the workers because there was too many strikes and things like that. But actually, the actual happened. I mean, when the bridge came down and I never got killed, I had a guilt complex for a few months. 
Yet you say to yourself, I work with nine people. They all got killed. Why didn't I get killed? And then after a while, you say to yourself, well, what did, what did I do wrong? I done nothing wrong. You know, it, it, it was those mongrels who were in charge of the job, those people who were supposed to be caring for us. They caused the accident. So then you get on with it. But, but the Royal yeah. Commission, really, it, Royal Commission was just to have a go at the trade union movement because it was a militant job. There was a few strikes on the job. And to say that Jack Onshaw, of course, he was already dead. He couldn't defend himself, that he caused the accident. Yeah, what was the overriding company building it? What was the company? Well, we worked for, we, uh, there was two companies. It was John Holland that did all the approachways on the concrete. And we worked for World Services who did all the steel work. World Services was behind in the contract over budget. They got sacked. And when the bridge collapsed, we were working for John Holland. And what steps were taken in that 18-month hiatus to make it safer for you to come back? Were there any at all? Nothing. The 18 months. When we came back, they brought out Dorman and Long from England, who did the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And there was a consortium called Dorman and Long Holland, who we worked for. And what they said, the bridge was not strong enough. There wasn't enough steel. So we spent about 12 months putting extra steel, uh, strengthened the whole job before production actually started. They saying, they saying it was basically done on the cheap. It wasn't strong enough. And that's probably why the other one collapsed too. I mean, you know, you design four bridges and two collapsed killing workers. There's got to be something really wrong, doesn't it, with your design or your erection procedure? Yeah. But when you went back, you were still virtually picking up where it had been left off when it broke, when it collapsed. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Just, just, just get on with it. Yeah, just put some extra steel in, into the box girders, make it stronger, and just get on and just go on the production side of it. Yeah. Oh, right. And so all these years later, I mean, how do you feel about it now? Obviously, you're pretty upset you've been saying that, but 50 years gone, and um, have we learnt much? Well, I, I, I don't really... If people want to know why the bridge collapsed, you, you can find that on the internet. I, I like to talk about the way workers were treated and, and the way we're treated today. And, and, I, and the, way, the way I talk about it, I hope that workers today never get treated the same way. I mean, I hope in 50 years' time, we're still saying the Westgate Bridge is the worst construction disaster we've had in this country, and that means we've never had another one. And workers shouldn't be treated the same. I mean, today, if it happened, we would have had counselling. We would have had support. I mean, not one of us were entitled to compensation, only people who were dead or injured. So all the people that rescued and come down, we weren't entitled to compensation. It, it, it was against the Act in them days. There was no Health and Safety Act. And I think workers today are a lot smarter than what we were 50 years ago. I mean, they've got the internet. I mean, we, we would have challenged that engineer. We might not have went back to work today if, if that had happened. You know, so th yeah. things certainly have moved on. And you would have had more facilities to test yourself the safety of the of the bridge without just taking the engineer's word for it. Well, only occupation helps and safety out the one. Now you, you you're the right, you've got the right to bring in experts. You can you can bring in engineers. We could bring an engineer that can question this person in front of us. When you've got a 22, 23-year-old person like me, this bloke saying he's the best in the world, he designed the bridge. I mean, it's a bit impressive the way, the way he carried on. And it was impressive because he was there all the time. So either he was incompetent and stupid or he knew he was taking health and safety right to the edge. I mean, one of those two things. He must have been aware that he was on the edge when he was telling people to pull Bolter. Yeah. Yeah, well, particularly given the experience of, of similar bridges. Ironically, I, mean, I suppose, Tommy, and we're talking to Tommy Watson, one of the people who was at West, on the working on the Westgate Bridge when it collapsed 50 years ago tomorrow. Tommy, just ironically this week, lead story in uh, Rupert Murdoch's wonderful paper, The Herald Sun, last Friday, Westgate sinking. And um, it, just, it just happens that this week the story's come out that it's, it's sinking and requiring to be jacked up. Uh, again, though, people, you know, the, the authorities say oh, there's no real problems, nothing to worry about. But uh, just interesting that 50 years later, this story's come out that it's now, now sinking and um, needs to be jacked up. I'm not sure how you jack up a bridge at, at I think it's 7.8 7 k's from the time it, it spots with the Port Melbourne. I'm not sure how you jack up 7.8 k's, but but it's just it, it's just the way they have what what it is. It's just taken away from the collapse and taken away from the incompetence of employers and and and, and the and the class what they done how they treated us. I mean the, you know it was like a 
like a servant master, the, the way this person was standing up, like like he's the master and we're the servants, you know, the Herald Sun still continue that way. Yeah, well, we'll wonder if that's right. And of course, John Holland's currently involved in a dispute around the Westgate Tunnel project, and they're um, they're trying to work out ways of dumping dumping uh, noxious soil um, somewhere other than uh, anywhere near them, I suppose. Yeah, it, it is. And the only thing is, I, I don't like to defend John Holland because the the Chinese consortium and and, the, and they're not they're certainly not a good union company, but. But they were certainly innocent on the Westgate Bridge. It was Freeman and Fox and Jack Hineshaw that were giving them directions. And some of their top people got killed too. It wasn't just all of us. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty... Uh, and, of course, the, there's a, the plaque down there. Now, the plaque was built with um, workers contributing a day's wages, wasn't it? Um, well, the plaque was a dispute by itself. Um, it, what, what we did is the first couple of years, we used to stop work, and that was an argument. They didn't want to stop work uh, on the anniversary. And we used to mingle where the bridge collapsed. And then we decided to uh, get a plaque. We were told that uh, we couldn't have a plaque because, you know why, it, it was going to be a toll bridge. And they told us loud and clear that they didn't want public being reminded of the accident because less people would lose the bridge and they'd get less toll money. And they said, you're not putting a plaque up. So that was nearly a dispute. Uh, we, we, we threatened to go on strike indefinitely. And then we got an agreement that a plaque would go up and every worker contributed one day's pay. And it wasn't like if you don't pay the money, you're off the job, and it wasn't uh, garnished or threatened. Every worker on that job volunteered to put in one day's pay without any argument. The company wanted to put money in, and we refused. So no company, no boss's money, that, that's all workers' money. Uh, that plaque was all paid by workers who were on the job. Mm. And of course, every year there's a ceremony there on this day, but um, this year was going to be the 50th anniversary and some special events, but that's been postponed now till next year because of Corona. Yeah, well, this this was going to be a big one, the 50th. I don't know how many. I think there's only one or two people still alive who wrote it down. I mean, I was 23 when it collapsed. If I was 33 or 43, I mightn't be here. So the 50th was going to be a big one. We had a big function organised. Uh, we were going to Pirates Tavern in Williamstown and to the, uh, we had a whole area, we had band, we had catering, all, all, it was all booked, all paid for, already done. Uh, we received money from the trade union movement, but we've cancelled all events this year because of uh, COVID. And what we'll do next year, uh, we'll get on with it. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we'll just get on with it. We'll have a bigger one next year and we'll just celebrate the uh, 50th next year. Yeah. You mentioned about the fact that workers might be smarter today, but in fact, 50 years later, if you'd done the strike action you've talked about, just walking out for, well, what you said, like you said, nine weeks, didn't you? Then today you'd be taken to court and charged with uh, with an illegal strike. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it wouldn't, matter, it wouldn't matter what the strike was over today. It's completely unlawful. I mean, you, you end up certainly in the construction, the ABCC, you get penalties, the jail terms and the act and all sorts of things. And it doesn't matter what you're striking over, health and safety and what we were striking over, they give us a commitment, our shop stewards get back on the job and we weren't going to go back on the job until they were there. Under today's environment, we've probably gone back 50 years. We've, gone, we've probably gone 50 years forward in health and safety and 50 years back in industrial relations. Yeah, I mean, just on that point, today you've got government and business who passionately defend the right of workers not to join a union, and it's almost regarded as a crime if you do want to join a union. Um, uh, so really, it's, it's, it's 50 years in which unionism's really suffered some major setbacks, unfortunately, because in, in the days when you were on that site, in blue-colour industries particularly, almost every worker had to be in the union to be on the job. Well, I, well, well I mean, the, the employer, the employer and, and the unions wanted everybody in the union. They wanted everybody under the same agreement because it was easy for the employer. And, I mean, I was a shop steward when we went back. And every morning I used to go to the office and check people's unions cards and make sure they were members of the union before they came on the site. And that was by agreement with the employer. And it worked well because the, the, the employer... If there, if there was any arguments, the arguments was before the person went on the job, not afterwards. And it, and, and, and it, worked, it worked well. It worked well. And not many people refuse to join a union. I mean, one person refuses, and you see on the front page of the Herald Sun that, you know, people refuse to join a union, but not many people uh, refuse to join a union. I mean, what else do workers have? I mean, 
I mean, how can you negotiate with Rupert Murdoch on wages and conditions? How are you on the same level as him? You know, I mean, you, it just, it's just all lopsided for, uh, for their way against workers. Yeah, in fact, ironically, I was actually working for Rupert Murdoch as a journalist on the day it happened. Uh, and I was out with a photographer. Was, as I say, everyone remembers where they were. I was out with a photographer on a job and he, he suddenly got a message to say, get down to Westgate, something terrible's happened. And um, he, I didn't get there. He dropped me back at the office, but he took off. So that was my first knowledge of something terrible that happened at Westgate. And then, of course, over the next few hours, the full story came out, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, they talk about the accident, you know, and they talk here today about first responders. At the Westgate Bridge, the first responders were workers. We were there long before the fire brigade, before the police came and all that. And, and when the fire brigade and police came, they weren't properly trained. I mean, nobody was prepared for an accident like that. We needed people that could use oxyacetylene, people that could use forklifts, drive cranes, and they couldn't do any of that. Today, they're trained. Today, they, they, they are trained to do that. But in them days, the first responders was workers. And if you have a look at most of the vision, you'll see pe uh, people getting carried on stretchers. You'll see workers with hard hats carrying the stretchers. I mean, we, we were doing things that we weren't supposed to do or see or were trained to. And then a few days after that, we get the arse, you know, for the week's wages. Yeah, it's uh, it's an awful setback, and that's not dissimilar, of course, to when the Grollo Wall collapsed a few years ago, and it was the workers from across the road, or the the much maligned CFMEU officials, who dashed across the road, and were again the first responders there. See, every time every time there's an accident on a construction site, the first responders are workers, because they're on the scene, they're right next to the people, you know, so they they're the first responders. Because the word accident, I think, is misused, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's not really an accident that the bridge came down. It was something that could well have been predicted, I, I guess, from the history you've talked about, about the particular bridges. Yeah, it certainly wasn't an accident. But, but then again, did the person deliberately do it? I don't think he did. But he, he, cer he, he certainly knew that he's right on the edge of health and safety. He must have known that the steel wouldn't have taken much more. I mean, he, he, when you design something, you certainly know how far things can go and how far they can stretch before you, you go over the cliff and it's too late. I mean, he must have known. The workers who were pulling the bolts out were just doing as they were told. They were told by a foreman, pull these bolts out. They did. The holes disappear and everybody looks at everybody and then a few seconds later, bang, it's gone. Yeah. So, Tommy, tomorrow, 50 years, what, what are your memories tomorrow? Uh, well, tomorrow, I don't live far from it, so I'll hop in the car and go down there and I'll just sit there and, and I'll just, uh, you know, think about the workmates I've lost, think about the accident and that. You, you know, also, I live in the western suburbs and I often say to people, I used to go to work, I was a CFMEU official, right? I was assistant secretary when I retired at Victoria and I used to, used to go by car over the bridge or under the bridge. And sometimes when you go over the bridge and there's a bit of a traffic jam, you sit on this section that collapsed and I'm sitting there in a car knowing that this section collapsed. Everybody around me has got no idea where they are. They're just waiting to get home or to go to work. And that's when you yeah. really see people's faces and that's where you really think about it because you're in the same spot where your workmates were and, and fell to their death. We talked about the psychiatric impact, but that, you, clearly it's something you simply never, never can and could forget having been there. Well, I've never been in a war. But this is this was my war zone. I mean, some people go to war and never never forget about it. I don't think it. See, I live in the western suburbs, so the Westgate Bridge is part of me, and I'm part of that, you know. And that's one of the reasons why I went back. I went back because I had to finish it for my for me and for my workmates that got killed. I mean, half the people didn't go back, but I went back to finish the bridge because I, I wanted to. Yeah. All right, Tommy. Anything to add? Because we've we've run out of time. But uh, anything anything we haven't no, said yet? No. No. That's fine. That's fine. Terrific. Okay. Look, Tommy, thanks for your thanks for your time this morning, and um, we'll be thinking of you all again tomorrow, and uh, and hopefully another a major no, not a celebration, a major commemoration in a year's time when we can do it. Look, Tommy, thanks for your time so much this morning, and um, we'll be thinking of you all tomorrow, and uh, and hopefully in twelve months' time a commemoration. Thanks very much for your interest in the in the action. Okay, Tommy. Thanks so much. Tommy Watson there, who was one of the workers, and as he said, he became, went back as shop steward, but uh, a dreadful experience for all those people. And 3CR will have more about it tomorrow. From 2 o'clock tomorrow, there'll be a, um, a much fuller...
discussion around the whole Westgate disaster. Karina, that's it for the show. Next week, of course, is housing, and hopefully Meg will be back next week, but also we'll have our usual suspect. Okay, that's that's it, City Limits, and um, and once again, thanks to uh, David Spat, who didn't know he was on, but he was, and um, and Tommy Watson for that, I think, quite moving interview about uh, being, a, being a worker on site when the bridge came down. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.